Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You have a guest yourself. I have, and just and? like me, my guest comes back quite regularly too, and it's Leanne Davidson. Now, Leanne, welcome back. Thank you, Jan. You're up to your third book in the Elby and the Cat series. The first book has Elby the dog and the cat meeting, and the cat asks, Why do you wear that thing? You look absolutely ridiculous in it. What thing is the cat talking about? Well, Jan, that thing would be called a harness. And harness? Yes. Horses wear harnesses. They do. This is a different sort of harness. This is a harness for a guide dog. And when the, a guide dog has the harness on, it means it's working. Ah, a guide dog. So that's LB the dog's difference. Yes. Well, how are you, Leanne Davidson, associated with guide dogs? Well, it all comes back um, to my a personal experience, Jan, with my father. He was blinded in an industrial accident many years ago when he was about 40. And he had a guide dog for 10 years, I think it was. And his name was Duke. And just seeing him every day and seeing their inter- interaction together, it's, that's what made me write the books. So Duke became part of the family? Very much so. When he wasn't working, he was just like any other pet. You take the harness off, he would lie by Dad's feet and pretty much wouldn't go anywhere without Dad. So it's really interesting how you've chosen to tell this story because we get the whole, all the information about blindness from Jim, who's blind in the book, but we get it from the dog's perspective. We get it from Elby's perspective. Well, I was trying to work out a way to tell the story and Elby is the main character. He's the like, protagonist. And I needed to have something that caused a little bit of conflict, but also you could get the point across and... Um, that's where I brought in the, the cat who lives next door. He's a fat, fluffy cat. He's well-fed, looked after, and he's very peeved that a dog who just comes to live next door could possibly warrant so much special attention. <laughs> and that leads into why Albie gets special attention. Mm. Well, your second book, Albie and the Cat, show business, really strains the relationship between dogs and cats. It does. What show does Albie have to take Jim to? <laughs> Well, there's the next door neighbour who grows roses and she is going to the Morvale show to show her roses because she's won three years in a row, I think it is. And um, the cat disappears in that story and Albie's wondering where the cat is because as annoying as the cat is, he still likes to, you know, it to come over every day, although he'd never admit it. And it's quite boring without the cat. There's no one to, you know, pick on or have little, you know, tete-a-tetes with and... Um, it's not until he goes to the show that he discovers the cat and the cat is actually at the show in a cat cat show. show. (laughs) Yes, yes. And the cat doesn't actually want to be there because um, he's got this little purple ribbon, a little blue ribbon because he he wins, but um, there's all the... the, Oh, yes, the The cat and the dog rivalry and the... um, Yeah, and being in amongst the other cats (gasps) and... Now, in this third book of the series, we have Albie in another uneasy situation. This time, Jim is talking about blindness at school and Albie recognises one of the small humans and Albie the dog is scared. He is scared, Jan. In the first book, um, Albie came face to face with this same small human 
And this was actually based on, on real life again. Mm. Um, Dad had a little holiday house with the mum and up at, at Locksport and he used to leave Duke outside the shop because it was too hard to bring him in the shop with all the, um, the customers going in and out. So he'd leave him outside and um, sometimes kids would be mucking around and they'd just, you know, throw things to see yeah. what his reaction would be and that's what I've brought into the book. It's not supposed to happen but it does happen. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, that same human who threw sticks and stones in the first book, he recognises him in the crowd and he's, you know, straight away he's uneasy. Well, Jim could feel Albie trembling and sense Albie's unease and they make a quick departure. But before they go, the readers learn quite a bit about what to do when you meet a blind person. That's All right. of this happened at a school. So how, how about we hear a little bit from Albie and the cat? Certainly, Jan. This is when Albie and Jim and Alan are at the school and Miss Demetriou is the teacher. Miss Demetriou made her way to the front of the class. Okay, one final question, she told the children. A sigh filled the room and the children looked disappointed. I just want to know how you eat, called out Amir. Actually, that's not as difficult as it might seem, Jim told him. A plate is like a clock face. So if Alan tells me that broccoli is at three o'clock, I can easily find the food I want to eat. Oh, replied Amir. Cool. So you know where the green stuff is? Jim laughed. Sure do. And Alan gives me plenty of the green stuff. Alan thought it was time she had her say, and not just about broccoli. When you meet blind people, always introduce yourself first, kids. Even though they can't see you, they may remember your voice if they've met you before. And if you move away or you go to leave, always tell them you are leaving so they are not left talking to themselves. Talking to themselves. That would be rather embarrassing. Oh, it would. And you don't think about it, but you've got to put yourself in their shoes. And that's why I've, I've written these books, to bring about awareness. Yeah. You, through the book, we're also told, you know, never to pat or talk to a dog when the dog's working. Yes. But the title of the third book in the series is All Hold Up. Yes. And this is the clue to one time where Albie refused to go on. He sat down, even though Jim asked him to proceed. Yes, that's right, because guide dogs know when to stop and when it's safe to proceed. And in this story, there's something going on outside the house and Elby becomes aware of it, even though Jim's not, and he won't proceed when Jim asks him to move forward. Mm-hmm. Look, through the book, there is humour of the cat and the dog, the dialogue and the actions, and it's very good. You've even called one chapter Cat Psychologist. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, throughout the book, they start as being, in the first book, they start as being, you know, not enemies, they're just... A dislike with each other although they they put up with each other by the third book they're almost becoming friends mm. yeah so leanne davidson is there going to be a, a fourth book in the albie and the cat series uh never say never jan <laughs> I've, I've already started a fourth book although um it hasn't come together yet but i have started one so you never know. <laughs> well, the first two made it into the Premier's Reading Challenge list, which they is did. a good way to do it. Definitely. And now this, well, how old do you think the reader is for this one, Leanne? Um, well, in the, in the Premier's Reading Challenge book list, it's for year three and four. Yeah. So it could probably be anywhere from six to, to ten. 
Probably. You've got a series of books that are written for slightly older children. I do. The Quizzical series. The Quizzical series, yes. That was my um, my first attempt at self-publishing with Quizzical. I, um, I sent it to a couple of publishers. I was very raw. I didn't know who to send it to. And I got a nice little letter back from one saying, it's well written and funny, but it doesn't fit our list. Oh. Probably because, you know, Harry Potter was out there and it was all about, you know, wizards and warlocks and all that sort of stuff. And um, mine was very different. Because I'm always sort of, I, I like to get a, um, a message across without preaching if I can. I like to add humour in my books, and and they're a little bit different. Um, and with Quizzical, it's the protagonist is a really smart boy okay, look, named Brain. I, <laughs> Brain Davis should have been and Brian, yeah, yeah, but Brain it is. And I, yes. this is a quote from Quizzical: How did you manage to be landed with such a ridiculous name as Brain? Well, Brand says, I suppose it's better than being called kidney or large intestine or worse still, anus. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I still remember these books. There's a whole series of three ones again. And um, they had quizzes and threw them. And yeah. So it was self-published. They won. won. They won an award. Yes. I. Um, when you write books, you never go... Um, you never think too far ahead. Like I didn't even think for a minute it would get in the premiers reading challenge lists. And then um, I, I entered it into the Australian Best Self-Published Books Awards in um, 19, uh, 2006, 1906, I was going to say, 2006. And I got a call to say it was joint winner. So I sort of had to jet off over to Sydney and um, wow. it was really exciting. It felt really surreal because it was like I was a different person. It was like some other person was doing all that and because I'm quite a shy person, it's hard to believe, Jen, I know, but I'm quite a shy person and it was just wonderful to have um, this extra thing. I'm going to bring co-presenter David McLean in on mm. the uh, conversation right now because, David, I think you've got a self-published... Self-published. I, I did uh, a series called Riddle Quest mm. and every chapter centred on a riddle. Um, what all way, what, um, I'm just trying to think of some, think of some of the riddles, um, but uh, what uh, murmurs never talks, what has a bed but never sleeps, yeah. uh, can run but cannot oh, some walk. Some I knew and some I thought were much too tricky for me. Yeah. But but it was that was a river. But then it, it raised that whole notion of of water yeah. being important in the storyline. So it actually gave a metaphorical level. I was trying to sort of reach the. Boys, especially mm. when they start to lose that um, interest in reading, to give them an extra challenge, uh, and, and yeah, it a uh, bit of an adventure. Um, the kids sent out on a quest to find their names. They're not given a name before they mm. go on this adventure. Uh, they've got to find their name as they go. So that was the Riddle Quest series. Yeah. David, did you know you could submit it to the self-published awards? I wasn't fully aware. And this is the thing about being a self-publisher. There is a whole other world out there. And if you are aware of all of the avenues you can go down, you need to sort of research them before you actually go on your own writing quest to know what avenues are possible, uh, looking at that whole notion of publicity as well. How do you mm -hmm. go about doing that? Exactly. Because even after writing, I mean, and being an author, you then have to switch brains and Very much so. become a marketer and become aware of the avenues you can pursue there as well. Well, Leanne, how do you market your books? Well, I think even when you are published by a commercial publisher, you still have to be proactive I, I email libraries, I email schools, I go and do school visits. I'm always doing something. I, I can't sit still and, and expect my books to sell off the shelf themselves. I'll always be asking, what can I do to, to help my book? And publishers are asking for that 
more often than not, when you submit a manuscript, they're also asking you what your uh, digital profile is so mm-hmm. that you can network and help them promote your book. Doing their work for them, perhaps a bit, a little bit. <laughs> the, the, the public um, with with Facebook and all that sort of thing, it's making things a little bit easier. Mm. Um, Twitter, you can get your things out there via social media, which is a really good avenue. Mm. Definitely, and also like the um, the Premier's Reading Book Challenge, you have to send those into the committees from each state. And just because you send them in doesn't mean that your book's going to be on the list. They have a committee that reads the books and decides yes, I want them on the list or no, oh, I don't. Yeah. Mm. All mm. this very good. If you've got a self-published book out there, um, you should be taking notice of this. But before you publish, the one thing every self-publisher should know is get a good editor. Oh, very much so. Yes, I cannot agree more. My editor has, um, she's, I'm proud to call her a friend now, Nan McNabb. Um, she edited um, some of Bryce Courtney's later work. And I was very fortunate at the time I, I was writing Quizzical that she had a bit of a gap in her um, her workload and Alan Cornwell who was um, producing the book for me at the time he was a friend of Nan's and had worked with her and, and said I might pass your manuscript on to Nan and see if she's got time and that's it she's, she's done all my books from, and she's also produced this, this latest Elby book and for some me. of it all falls down to luck as well it does ways, very much David connection. Yeah. very much yeah oh well well, Thank maybe. you very much, Leanne Davison, David McLean, giving us your self-published uh, books, <laughs> You're stories. Welcome, about, um, but Leanne Davison is, is whom I majorly spoke with today <laughs> about her Albie and the Cat series, three in the series, and also her quizzicals. Thank you, Jen, very Thank much. You, well, I'm off uh, to have a bit of a romance. Uh, <laughs> you do that, David. <laughs> uh, it's called The Wife's Tale by Christine Wells. My novel today is a romance set both in the present and the past. It is entitled The Wife's Tale and the author is Christine Wells. So, Christine, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me, David. Before we get into the story, there must be challenges in setting a romance convincingly in two distinct periods of time, the late 1700s, as in here, and the present day. Well, I think uh, the manners and morals of the 18th century are quite different from today, and uh, Delaney, who was my 18th century heroine, had to face a lot of uh, public criticism and scandal for her choices. Um, and of course, in present day, we don't tend to worry about that sort of thing unless we're public figures. What do the periods have in common then in terms of romance? Well, I think love is love and humans are human. Whatever period they're in, uh, love conquers all in most romance novels. Um, people are the same, you know, whatever generation you're in. But Delaney Rothwell <clears throat> adds so much more to uh consider and worry about propriety, decorum, uh, the social attitudes where you could be actually virtually expelled from society. Yes, and she had the responsibility of uh, finding a good match to save her family's fortunes as well because her father died, her brother was a layabout and her sister was too young to to marry, so it fell to her. She had dreams of being a novelist herself, but... Uh, she had to forgo that 
to save her family. Now, we'll pick up on some of these elements of the story later, but you've, you've touched on something I'm interested in, that notion of um, Delaney Rothwell, who became Lady Nash, wanting to be a novelist. And I'm just wondering if you have been playing or toying with the uh, conventions or the attitudes towards romance fiction, because at one point... Miss Rothwell, as she was then, uh, before she married, receives this letter from Julian Nash, uh, a love interest, about um, a manuscript she has submitted of a romance novel. Dear Miss Rothwell, the writer begs leave to inform you that your novel, while complete drivel from start to finish, is well-constructed and, high and highly entertaining drivel. Moreover, it is precisely the sort of drivel that should sell an overabundance of copies sufficient to delight even the stone-cold heart of our mutual friend. As I explained to you at Chapters, my standing with Mr Gibbs is in all likelihood considerably lower than yours. I have, however, and in accordance with your most impassioned and able advocacy on your own behalf, entreated the publisher to give said drivel due and proper consideration. What he will do now is anyone's guess. Throw it on the fire, probably, which would be rather a pity. Nevertheless... I must urge you to consider exercising your singular talents on more serious and vital subjects than mere romance novels. It would be a pity for a woman of your parts to expend her efforts on drivel alone. Are you suggesting something about romance novels? <laughs> well, I think Delaney uh, had an attitude towards her novels. And in those days, any adventure story was called a romance. So it didn't necessarily centre on a love story. But she despised what she was doing and she was doing it just for the money at first, but then she fell in love with all the writing of them and, and decided that perhaps she could get some good points across via a novel that she couldn't get across if she just wrote. Well, that's, that's part yeah. of what she does at the end mm. is sort of assert her independence and her story through her writing. But here's the other thing. You've got now the contemporary setting where Liz, the main character, is in fact suggesting that she's writing a novel. She's using that as a mask or a disguise because of her exercise. So this novel writing is going throughout <laughs> the book. Yes, it's good fun writing about novelists when you are one. <laughs> you get to uh, discuss a few of the trials and tribulations. But uh, Liz is really there undercover at Seagrove, which is a stately home on the Isle of Wight. Uh, and because she's delving into the past and researching a mystery, uh, she decides that the easiest way to get the information she wants is to say she's writing a novel. Well, we better now fill in the listener with some of this background. We've hinted at some of the story elements, but we begin in the present day and our heroine is Liz... Jones. Liz Jones, very ordinary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she is tasked um, in finding out something about an inheritance. Well, Liz works for a Playboy property developer who uh, believes that he's the true heir to this estate on the Isle of Wight. And the currents that um, he is interested in happened in the 18th century. So he can't actually legally recover this property, but he wants to know and he actually wants to buy it from the owners of the present day who won't sell it to him. But, of course, so Liz is going there undercover, yes. so to speak, and meets up mm. with... 
Theo, who is Lord of the Manor, Lord Nash, and uh, Theo has inherited the estate from his father a couple of years ago, but the family is struggling and uh, they need some cash to keep the house going, so they're attempting all of these events and fundraising activities. To maintain the estate. Yeah. But of course then, having come in disguise, so to speak, Liz can't necessarily be honest with Theo, so that brings about the friction in the relationship there. The setting then, the period setting, what's the story there? Well, the story in the 18th century is really Delaney's story. It's not a romance in the traditional sense. It's the story of Delaney's journey. And in trying to save her family, she marries a man who's wealthy and she thinks that's the answer to... But there is a problem with this <laughs> marriage, um, yeah. which would seem to even... Uh, would even concern people today. Yes, well... Richard, her husband, just happens to be the brother of the man that is in love with Delaney and uh, Delaney is in love with him, although she doesn't realise it for quite a while. And the, the brothers have always had a rivalry. so Which has the potential to be quite explosive yes, in yes. many ways. But it also picks up on the notion of inheritance. The, the inheritance always goes to the eldest son. That's right. Who's not necessarily the most appropriate son. No, <laughs> certainly not. But then Rothwell Delaney has her own past. What has she been up to? She has a bit of a sketchy past because she was a naughty girl when she was younger and uh, had an affair with the footman and she was going to run away with him, but he made off with all her money instead. And it taught her a lesson that perhaps made her a bit too pragmatic when it came to marrying later on. Mm. And then there are children to the relationship, but a bit of a scandal. Yes, because uh, their mother leaves the younger son, Julian, a very large fortune that the older son, Delaney's husband, covets, he decides that he's going to sue his brother for criminal conversation, which is an action that a husband could take in those days against his wife's lover. And they used to award many thousands of pounds in damages. I love the term. Was it criminal? Criminal conversation. A, a conversation taking place. A nice, <laughs> a nice way of putting it. But this would have required a lot of research to look into these aspects, yes. etc. Mm. And you've got, in fact, a transcript of some of the court proceedings, how true to detail are those transcripts in terms of what would have taken place? I have modernised the language to some extent, but I studied many cases of the time and there are plenty of reports, even online, of uh, cases of criminal conversation because they were the entertainment of the day. I mean, the people didn't read gossip magazines, they read the reports of the criminal conversation trials. And a lot of this was taking place in many ways. There are references to, to the flirting and all of these sorts of things that were going on in society, but there was also this undercurrent, which you actually pick up on, because Richard and Julian's mother uh, is somewhat debilitated by... A, syphilis, a syphilis, yes. Which leads then to the question of inheritance, of course, if all these dalliances are taking place. And this is then a line of intrigue 
that goes through the book. Yes. What are you doing there? Well, I, I won't give away any spoilers, so it's a bit hard to talk about, but uh, there is a reason connected to the court case and the two brothers that... Nick, Liz's boss, believes that he's descended from the younger brother and that the younger brother should have inherited the title. Well, his, his line should have inherited yes, the title. Yes, But given, you know, the, the behaviours taking place <clears throat> in the time, there are offspring of the relationship and some unexpected twists there, uh, which will keep the reader intrigued and we can't give <laughs> the listener any details about that. The only other thing I was interested in are the two stories parallel? Because we have, in the period setting, an individual called Margaret, and in the contemporary setting, I think it's Valerie, isn't it? Yes, Valerie. Well, Valerie is Theo's ex-wife. Fiancé. Fiancé. At the time, yes. Fiancé. Yes. So there's resentment there, and Margaret has her own reasons for resentment. What are they? Well, that's a bit of a spoiler too, but Margaret uh, was hoping very much to be the next Lady Nash and had schemed and uh, actually got a job as a companion to the Lord Nash's mother so that she could inveigle her way into the good graces. But Were you deliberately paralleling the two sorts of lines or is that just coincidental? I think it's coincidental, but I am exploring in this book the way women get what they want and do they go for it wholeheartedly like Delaney did? Do they manipulate their way into what they want? Are they forced into some kind of deception like Liz? Some of that in some ways would be determined by the period in which it's set because certain social conventions would be determining behaviour. Yes, but Delaney in the 18th century really isn't Uh, She is of her time because there were plenty of women who had their own agency and, you know, you had Mary Wollstonecraft at that time talking about the rights of women. And you you bring in Wilberforce and uh, references, those historical period references, which Mm. is interesting and intriguing. Well, because Julian says marriage is only slavery by another name, so there's a bit of a theme of slavery in the book too, but just slightly touched on. And the way Mm. women are treated. Mm. Christine, it's been a fascinating conversation. The book is The Wife's Tale. You sort of get two romance stories in one here. (laughs) Uh, You get an, an element also then of intrigue permeating it all. So the book is The Wife's Tale and it is a Penguin release. So thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you, David.